0: It is good to be back. We're very glad for our partnership with this church. Uh, You are very much appreciated as a partner and supporter of our work in Dubai, so thank you, Liberty Church. Even if you didn't know that you were a partner with us, we're still thankful for you, so thank you for that. Uh, We love your pastors. Love Matt, love John, especially John, because he's here today, and we're also thankful to you uh, once again for loving Matt well uh, by sending him out on a sabbatical. Uh, so he can rest and recharge and serve you well in the years uh, to come. So thank you for doing that. Angel and I bring you greetings from Redeemer Church of Dubai. Uh, our church there is aware that we as pastors, a few of us that are on staff, uh, raise support from churches in the U.S. and build partnerships in, with churches in the U.S. Um, so that the church there is prayed for and connected with and partnered with churches around the world. And So they're very thankful for you. Uh, they send their greetings and appreciation as well. Um, we are thrilled to be doing the ministry that the Lord has allowed us to be part of there. And if you're not in touch with us, uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of thing and uh, email. So if you want to be in touch with us, uh, grab me after the service or Angela, and I'm sure we can make sure we have those digital connections. But we are not here to talk about us today, though. We are here to talk about the Trinity, I'm privileged to share with you on the kind of first topic in your foundational beliefs series. I know you had an introduction last week, and we're going to dive into this idea of the Trinity. And I imagine as was impressed upon you last week, although I wasn't here for it, I imagine as what was pressed upon you is that everybody is a theologian. Everybody is a theologian. Many of us have been, uh, depending on our background, nurtured to kind of de-emphasize theological study. Maybe you've been explicitly warned against theological study. Maybe you've had bad experiences with theological study where you cracked open that theological book, couldn't make it past the first paragraph, so put the book back on the shelf and moved on. But everybody is a theologian, and the question is really just, are you a good one? are you a good theologian? Do you actually have a theology that accords with what is good? Because theology is often uh, like car mechanics, if we want to think of that analogy. When we put our key in the car and we turn it on and we start going down the road, we don't want to be thinking about how that's happening. We don't want to be thinking about combustion. And we don't want to be thinking about the axles in our car and how they're keeping uh, the wheels on there. We just want the car to turn on, And we wanted to go down the road, and we would like the wheels to stay on the car and the brakes to make them stop at the appropriate times. And it's only when things go wrong that we start to think about how it's all happening. We go to the mechanic, and he tries to explain to us what's going wrong. We have no idea what he's talking about, or at least I never do. And so we give money and hope it gets better. (laughs) That's often what it looks like with theology. Things go wrong in our life. We don't know what's going uh, what's going on, so we go to the pastors. We don't give them any money, but we do expect them to fix our problems. So rather than doing that, rather than doing that, why don't we become good theologians? Why don't we not wait until the crisis strike, until the storms of life uh, break against our shores? And why don't we dig deep roots of theology, of study, when we? come to the study of theology, what we're doing is we're not seeking to bring our world to the Bible and say, explain yourself. Explain yourself, Bible. Why do you make sense to me and my world? But rather we, in the study of theology, are learning the world of the Bible, learning the world as God created it and as he wants us to understand it. And then we can come to our world and say, yes, this is how it should be. So your task over the next few weeks is to become good theologians, and I hope you can be successful in that. Well, this study of the Trinity, I think I kind of do the short straw, to be honest with you. The study of the Trinity is a difficult one. We worship a triune God. That is, God is tri, he is three, and yet un, he is united, he is triune, he is the Trinity. And this is a topic about which theologians have much to say. Most theologians that give a considered study of the topic of the Trinity uh, have books that extend to multiple volumes, thousands of pages, and so while preachers regularly make the joke about preaching going long, I literally am going to preach until 2 p.m. today, and so just text your mom, you're going to be late to lunch. (laughs) Some of you are wondering, is he serious? I heard they do that in Dubai. But here in uh, the study of theology, we are wading into essential, if somewhat obscure, waters. Essential in that you cannot honestly call yourself a Christian and deny the Trinity. You can't fully comprehend it, but you can't deny it. Many heresies deny the Trinity by trying to explain it. Maybe you've heard some of those illustrations or Uh, allusions to what the Trinity is like. You've heard that the Trinity is like an egg. Here's how the analogy goes. The Trinity is like an egg. In one egg, you have the white, you have the yolk, and you have the shell. One egg, three things. (laughs) Well, this Analogy denies the unity of the Godhead. The problem is that an egg yolk is a very different substance than the shell, and and that's very different than the white part. So, this is actually a heresy, and it's called tritheism. Three gods, that's not who we worship. You might have heard the illustration that the Trinity is like water. It goes like this Uh, the water has three stages it can be solid, it can be liquid, it can be gas. And even though the water changes form, it's all still H2O. That's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, for those of you who are homeschooled, like me. <laughs> Love to you, Paige. <laughs> this analogy denies the distinction of the Godhead. The problem with this analogy is that no one molecule of H2O exists simultaneously as solid, liquid, and gas at the same time. So this is a heresy as well. This is called modalism that's modalism we can look at other ones there's analogy that this trinity is like a man who can be a father husband and son at the same time that breaks down as well because what well, this is also a form of modalism that the one person is operating in different ways at different times but never eternally co-equal and separate Again, a form of modalism. We could look at Arianism. We could look at partialism. We could look at docetism and other isms, but none of these illustrations work. Because while this doctrine of the Trinity is essential, it's also somewhat obscure. We approach these obscure waters with humility because the Trinity is a mystery. One of the most articulate and verbose theologians of our time is a guy named John Frame. I love John Frame. He has an intelligent thing to say on virtually every point of theology and has written most of it down. And he said this about the study of the Trinity. I think some theologians exaggerate what we know about the Trinity. Much that the Bible teaches about the Trinity is very mysterious and we must bow in humility as we enter this holy realm. Well, not one of our contemporaries, but rather one of the church fathers, Augustine, agreed, but with some optimism. Although Frame didn't give us much of that, Augustine does. He says about the subject of the Trinity, In no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. The discovery of truth profitable. Well, that's what we're after. That's what you're after in this study of your foundational beliefs is the profitable discovery of truth. We want to know the truth. We want the truth to set us free. Well, the God of the Bible has revealed himself in truth as Father, Son, and Spirit, all eternally co-eternal as God and all separate in person and yet one. One. And this incredible truth about the transcendent God of the universe is also very practical to us. Do you remember when Jesus was commissioning his disciples and what he told them to do as they made followers? He said his disciples should go about baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name of God his understanding that he wants to make known about himself and to be the framework of our lives as disciples is his triunity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is to define our lives as believers, and it is to shape us and fuel our love for him. So what I want to do today is two things. I'm not going to give you an extended lecture on the Trinity, so you can keep your lunch plans. What we are going to do is simply read the confessional statement of Liberty Church, which I fully embrace. And then we're going to make a few observations, primarily from Ephesians chapter 3, about how the Trinity impacts our prayer life. Because at the end of the day, there is no passage of the Scripture that really unpacks the Trinity for us. There's no author of one of the books of the Bible that uh, pushes pause in his discussion and says, okay, guys, look, I know this topic of the Trinity is thorny, so let me break it down for you. We don't have that passage. What we do have is God manifesting himself and displaying himself and telling us about himself, and at the end of the day, we look back and realize, oh, he's talking about triunity. He's talking about himself as triune. And in the same way with prayer, we we don't really get many passages apart from the Lord's Prayer where the New Testament is teaching us how to pray in terms of mechanics, in terms of postures, in terms of do we journal, do we not journal, do we keep cards, do we not keep cards? Who knows, do we need an app? Nobody knows. What the New Testament does do is tell us about God. And it shows us prayer. And so I think Ephesians 3 does both of these things. And that's what we'll look at. So before we do, we do want to orient ourselves to what we believe about the triune God. And so, I'm going to ask us to stand, and we are going to read together this statement about the triune God, which is part of your core foundational beliefs. It'll be here uh, behind me. So this is uh, the foundational belief of the triune God. Let's read it together. We believe in one God, eternally existing, and three equally divine persons the father the son and the holy spirit who know love and glorify one another this is one true god, living god is infinitely perfect both in his love and in his holiness he is the creator of all things visible and invisible and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration immortal and eternal He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. You can be seated. That is the God that we serve And even just then, as you read through that statement, I'm sure a few of you were thinking, yeah, I don't know what some of those words meant. Well, I want to commend your inquiry into that specific topic of how the Trinity works. A great book to do that is Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity. It's short, it's accessible, it's practical. Check out Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity. Or Fred Sanders wrote a book called The Deep Things of God. Both of those would be great Uh, resources to you to develop a theology of the Trinity. But now, as I mentioned, I want to spend the rest of our time considering how the Trinity informs how we pray. Ephesians is a book I've been spending a lot of time in lately, and if if you have a Bible with you or can tap to one, um, it will primarily be in chapter three. But in chapter two of Ephesians, in chapter two, verse 18, Paul makes this comment For through him we have both we both have access in one spirit to the Father. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What he's saying is that those who are far off from the chosen people, the people of Israel, those that are being brought near, Paul's saying that everyone has access to God. Through one Spirit to the Father. Through who? Through Christ. Through Christ. So reading it that way. So through Christ, we all have one access through the Spirit to the Father. By the Spirit to the Father. So what we're going to think about in prayer, because Paul models this then in chapter 3, is how prayer is by the Spirit, prayer is through the Son, and prayer is to the Father. Prayer is by the Spirit through the Son and to the Father. So, first, we pray by the Spirit. Popping over there to Ephesians chapter 3, from verses 14 on down to the end of the chapter, Paul's giving us a report of how he prays, how he prays for the churches. He's planted this church in Ephesus, he's longing for this church to be one that's making known the mysteries of God to the rulers and to the people. He's longing for this to be a place that's built on the cornerstone of Christ. It's one of the foundational churches of the Christian movement in its early days. And this is how Paul prays for them. You see in verse 16, Paul prays according to the Spirit. He's praying for them, and he's praying that according to the riches of his glory, of God's glory, that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul is praying that these individual Christians will be strengthened by the spirit. Will be strengthened by the spirit. Now this spirit is the one who spoke words of of life into them who was the instrument of God's conversion in their hearts. He is the one that brought them that from their dead trespasses and sins, chapter 2 verse 1. And he brought them and rejuvenated their hearts, opened their eyes to the the greatness of God, enlightened them. This spirit is now continuing at work in them, not only to have brought them unto salvation and now to strengthen them. Romans 8 illustrates this point. Paul elaborates this point in Romans 8. He says, therefore, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery and fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So we have not received a spirit of slavery, A spirit of slavery. When we come to faith, we don't become enslaved to a new law. We don't become enslaved to a a new ruler. We become freed from our sins. And that spirit is the one who is with us and is leading us into freedom and into grace and truth. This idea of adoption is wonderful, isn't it? You know, for most of us, we primarily think of our salvation in terms of the ideas of pardon and forgiveness. And if you think about that, if you think about um, you know, Donald Trump, if he was to, you are a, a rank criminal deserving fully of a lifetime sentence in prison. And then the president, your case comes across his desk and he has the power to write you a full pardon. No more penalty, nothing on your record. The president has pardoned you. And then the next day, you come across over there to uh, his house the White House. You knock on the door. What's going to happen? It's going to stay shut. They're not going to let you in. You've been pardoned, but you're not a son. The spirit of adoption that we receive through God is that we are not only pardoned, forgiven from our sins, but we are adopted as sons. The spirit that comes into us helps us to know that. I love what it says there that, that the, the Spirit is causing us to cry, Abba, Father. You know, when people come to me as a pastor and they're struggling with assurance of their salvation, one question I often ask is, is Are you praying? Do you pray? And if I say, Yes, like I'm, I'm begging the Lord, I, I want to know Him, well, that's, that's the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit in our hearts is causing us to pray. It's causing us to cry out to the Father. And even if he might feel distant, that can give us assurance, knowing that that is the Spirit at work, causing us to live in light of our pardon, live in light of the freedom that we have. But then Romans 8 goes on to say that the Spirit also helps us to pray. There at the end of Romans 8 Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray oftentimes. We come across a situation, we have no idea what to do about it. Paul, as he was thinking about these Ephesian believers, he knew that they weren't perfect. He knew that this church was struggling with disunity. It was struggling with um, not living in the manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Husbands were not loving their wives. People were not speaking the truth in love to one another. But before he gave them those admonitions and encouragements, Paul knew that the only way it was going to happen is if it was the Spirit at work in them, strengthening them, causing them to do as the Lord would will them to do. Now we can get confused by this, and so we can wonder how does, this, how does this work? How does this work? So, does this just mean that we somehow become possessed? by the Spirit, and it's not really us working anymore, but it's this Spirit that's inside of us that is causing us to do things. We go into some sort of trance. Well, no, that's, that's not what it is. The reality is, we don't know. This is, this is one of the best parts about theology, where you get to the point where you just say, I don't know. We don't know. It could be something like a, if you think of a father teaching his son to play golf. This was me when I was young. We'd go to the driving range, and there's this bucket of balls there. We're going to hit some down the range. And to learn the mechanics of the swing, you can sit back, and you can tell your son, well, you know, put more weight on that foot or, no, move the club like that. But what you end up doing or what ended up happening to me is that the father comes behind, puts his arms around his son, and shows him how to swing the club. And then when the ball goes down the the yard, was it the son who hit the ball? Was it the father who hit the ball? Yes. They worked together. The ball was struck. Does it really matter who hit it? In some ways, that's sort of like how the Spirit attends to us in our prayers and in, in our growth in the Christian life. He's with us. He's present among us. He's leading us according to the will of God. Well, friends... In our prayers, are we in tune with this spirit? Do we seek the spirit? Are we appreciative of God's power at work in us in the spirit? Or are we seeking to pray according to our own strength? Are we seeking to live the Christian life according to our own strength, just to get up and get through the day? Paul here is praying for us that we wouldn't do that, that our growth would be one that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Well, we pray by the Spirit, but well, we also pray through the Son. We pray through the Son. The Spirit strengthens us, according to Ephesians 3 here, to be rooted and grounded in love, and as Christ dwells in our hearts, we come to know that love. Read those verses if, if you have them, and in verse uh, 17, 18, 19, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's saying this is what is going to happen when the Spirit is strengthening you, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, then verse 19, it would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Isn't that amazing? That the manner in which the Spirit strengthens us is by leading us into the fullness of God by experiencing the beauty of the love of Christ. The love of Christ is is an amazing, phenomenal dynamic that is, is that relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus talks about it in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that know that you have sent me. I have made them known to your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus here, he's reflecting on this loving relationship that he's had with God the Father from all eternity. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus says, you loved me. We experienced this love together and now Jesus is saying, I want my followers to know the same thing. I want them to experience this relationship of love that we've had. And that's what Paul, back in Ephesians 1, is almost like he's reflecting there on John 17 when Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Same phrase that Jesus used. As Jesus and the Father were experiencing the love between them before the foundations of the world, Paul says at that time, at that time, They chose that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, predestined for adoption as sons through Christ, through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's so much to unpack there, but I love how Paul wraps up that thought in chapter one. He wraps it up talking about how through Christ we will experience this relationship of love that he has had with the Father. And we will experience it through Christ up until the point where he ends by saying, at that point, they're the beloved. They are known by the fact that they are experiencing love. I assume that you know the experience of getting something you don't quite deserve just because you're attached to the right people know if you've had that experience where maybe you've, you've gotten into something that, yeah, you don't really belong there, but you know the owner, you know the, somebody who's employed there, they let you in the back door, they let you sit in a place of, of importance or authority. We had the reverse experience yesterday uh, on the way here. Uh, we were, as a family, six of us traveling here to Harrisburg at the airport uh, in Dallas, and I felt sure that I remembered that I had got some sort of uh, membership credit card point thing that we had access to the lounge at the airport. It was in my mind somehow. So we got through security, and uh, I called a family huddle. And I said, kids, you're not going to believe it. What's going to happen is, while we wait for the airplane, we're going to go to the lounge. Like, what, the lounge? Wow. So we go, yeah. So we walk down this place. We find the lounge. We walk there, we're pushing all our bags, strollers. I give the tickets to Emerson, our daughter. Uh, she slaps them down on the desk and you know, says, here we are. The lady looks at the tickets, and uh, yeah, we didn't have access to the lounge. She kindly returned them to me and explained the situation, and I quickly said, kids, I don't think we have time for the lounge. I think uh, Starbucks is open, though. Let's go this way. So with our tail between our legs, we left the lobby of the uh, lounge and went to somewhere else. Through Christ, we have access. We don't just have access to a lounge. We don't just have access to somewhere uh, nice to sit for a little while. We have access to the Father. We have access. We have the ultimate connection through Christ. The best relationship possible Love before the dawn of time. We look into that and we think, wow, that's amazing. Those two, they're they're so in love with each other. There's so much goodness and holiness there. I would love to just someday experience some of that. And Jesus is saying, yeah, come. Through me, you have access to the Father. Friends, do you know that? have Have you experienced that? Is that you? Does that define your christian experience or for some of you who are not christians today you're you're saying i don't know what you're talking about well friend to you if your life is marked more by the experience of the problems and consequences of your sinfulness you are someone who can come to christ and receive love because the love that we receive from the father through christ is not based on our performance there is no list of rules that I'm here to give you today to say this is how exactly you can pray in order to receive Christ's love. No. Christ accomplished on the cross according to the will of the Father so that the penalty we deserve, He would bear so we can know only love. If that's a relationship you want to get in and on, you can through Jesus. So we pray by the Spirit, by His strength, by His enablement, through Christ to the Father. And that's what Paul's leading us to think about here again in his prayer report in Ephesians 3. He starts his prayer by saying this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, in America, I'm from here so I can speak to it, we don't get into this whole naming stuff very much. Names are often what sounds the best to us. Uh, you know, we, or we you know, sent, put a Pinterest board up on the, the wall and throw a dart at it and pick what name sounds great. I don't know what the means are now. In UAE, names mean a lot. Our ruler is Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum might not know that name or what that means, but sheikh is a title, he's a ruler, sheikh. Muhammad, that's his personal name, but it also indicates significantly his religion. Bin Rashid means he's the son of Rashid, in this case specifically, the son of Sheikh Rashid bin Said al-Maktoum, the founder of, one of the founders of the UAE. And you might have noticed in both their names this idea of Al-Maktoum. That means that that's their family name. So everybody would have this kind of rhythm to their names of their personal name, well, their their honorific title, their personal name, who they're the son of, and what family they're part of. So Al-Maktoum is the ruling family of Dubai. Your name is very important. Someone says that name, you know exactly who they are. They have a different name, a different father, a different family, They're going to put them in a different category. And what Paul is telling us is that every family in heaven and on earth derives its identity from one source, the Father. The Father. The Father is the one from whom everyone has come. And in using this language, he's sort of reminding us not just of Great Commission language, when Jesus calls his disciples to go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to baptize. But even back a bit further than that, if you go in your mind's eye to Genesis 12, where where God gives the commission or the covenant with Abraham. Remember what he tells Abraham? He says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, God is the truer and better Father Abraham. He is the one from whom all families on earth will be blessed. He is the Father of every nation. Why is this important for us as we pray? Why this is important for us is that when we think about the Trinity and who the Trinity is, we not only learn how to pray, but we learn what to pray for. See, as familiar as we might be with our prayer in our Christian life being primarily in personal terms about private realities for our individual burdens, the New Testament actually pushes us to think about primarily corporate and global concerns for which we can participate in. That's what's happening even here in this prayer. That he's praying to the Father, inviting us to consider that this is the Father, not just our personal Father, although he is that, but this Father is the Father of every person in the world, who out of love for those people, God so loved the world that he sent his Son, that through his Son, by his Spirit, they might have new life. So now, to him, verse 20, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that work within us, to him be the glory. So Paul is saying, as we consider the Trinity, as we consider who God is, that ought to impact how we pray. James 4 reminds us of two problems with our prayers. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you do not have because you don't ask. You do not have because you don't ask. Paul says this similarly here when he says he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. What he's saying is, guys, you can't ask something too big for God. There's some things that we think about, but we don't even ask it. Because there's just no, God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't use me to serve the church. He doesn't, he doesn't know how broken I am. Maybe there's that besetting sin in your life, where you know that's what's keeping you back from thriving in your marriage, thriving in your parenting, thriving in your witness at work, and you think, this is just going to be part of my life forever." Why do you ask of the Lord? Do you remember a, a few Christmases ago? Maybe some of you were uh, around at that point on the Internet at that point? There was this kind of viral commercial, one of the uh, airline, I think it was WestJet. Uh, they, they did a commercial where... At the boarding gate, so I don't know, uh, air air travel is obviously an illustration coming to mind these days. Um, At the boarding gate, they put a kind of TV screen of Santa Claus, and you'd scan your boarding pass, and then Santa Claus would come on, and the people boarding the plane would uh, ask what they wanted. So we said, oh, what do you want for Christmas? And some people would say, I want flight tickets home to see my family, or I want a big screen TV. One guy asked for socks and underwear. They were asking all different things, so they... uh, they go on the plane don't think anything of it and then they get to the baggage claim at the next airport and instead of their luggage coming out it's presents so the staff of this airline has gone around madly searching while they're in en route on the flight and they've purchased all these things for them so a widescreen tv comes out of the, the conveyor belt the uh, you know all these presents come out and I thought man that's that's so great isn't it? it's very nice Unless you're the guy that asked for socks, <laughs> right? Because he, he did. Like you see there in the video, he's, he's, got, he's like, oh, my socks and underwear. And the guy next to him has a widescreen TV. <laughs> we don't have because we don't ask. We don't have because we don't ask. Those are the, the words of James chapter 4. But now remember... When Paul is praying, when James is challenging us, he's not challenging us to pray for greater land, greater blessings, greater wealth, greater possessions. What they're bending us to pray for is the experience of the triune God, the God from whom all families on heaven and on earth are named. The Son, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and is making disciples from among every nation. The Spirit, who by His power the gospel is going forward, as we remember today on Pentecost to every nation. We don't ask, we don't have because we don't ask. Have we asked the Lord for the nations? Have we asked the Lord for His glory to fill the world as water covers the sea? And have you asked the Lord? to participate in that work. It might not mean coming to Dubai. It might mean that. You're welcome. It might mean simply being a faithful parent, simply being a faithful neighbor, coworker. But you don't have because you don't ask. Are you asking for spiritual concerns? Because that's the other problem that James 4 points out. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We ask for the wrong things. Tim Keller says in his book on prayer, God gives us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that He knows. Let me ask you this what what would have changed about the global advance of the gospel? if all of your prayers the last week were answered? What would have changed about this church if all of your prayers of the last week were answered? And if your answer to that is, well, I didn't pray last week. Well, let's start there. Pray for prayer. Pray to the Spirit, saying, Spirit, I know my prayer life is lacking. Spirit, come, strengthen me to be a person of prayer. I want to know the Father through the Son. Spirit, help me. And if you think about your prayers in the last week, and they were primarily and perhaps completely about your personal burdens and gain, well, those are perhaps not unworthy prayers. Perhaps they're insufficient prayers. Perhaps the Lord would be calling you to think more broadly, to think more ambitiously about what he could do in this church and around the world. So we pray by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. I trust I haven't answered all of your questions about the Trinity. and There's some uh, areas of the combined triune Godhead that remain to you a mystery, and that's okay. That's okay. But I also hope that you have been encouraged to pray, and to pray by the Spirit, through the Son, and to the Father, because this is our God. This is our God. Well, let me do that now. Let's pray. Our Father, we do not know how to pray as we ought. And yet we are confident that your spirit is at work within us to strengthen us, Lord, and to open our eyes to see your glory. And so I I pray that he would even now, Lord, as we come to communion, to the bread and to the wine, to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would the Spirit enable us to see his beauty, to see him for who he is, to rejoice in him and to know that we can know you through him and his sacrifice on our behalf. And Father, would you lead us to know how to live as we ought, how to have ambitions as we ought, knowing your great worthiness. Would we long to see you worshipped around the world